This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 6th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is Acts 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the, and all of his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadema, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who, had, who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph and Barsabbas, who was also called Just, Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Praise be to God. You may have a seat. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. We are continuing, having just begun our series in Acts, so we'll be in here for some time. I'm going to pray, ask God to move me out of the way, and do what He needs to do by His Spirit. So bow with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, by Your Spirit, through Your Spirit. It has the power to change us from the inside out. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that You will speak to us. Move me out of the way. Holy Spirit, speak the words that you need to speak to those to whom need to hear them, whether it be words of conviction, words of comfort, words of instruction, words of salvation, Lord. Open our minds and our hearts to see you and to hear you and to allow this foolishness, if you will, to become wisdom, to allow your truth to permeate our lives and to change us. And teach us, Father, what it means to wait for you and how we ought to do that. We are gathered here, Lord, to praise your name, 
to celebrate what you have done and to know the one in whom we have believed. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, if you're anything like me, which you may or may not be in accord to what I'm about to describe, I do not like to wait for much of anything. I don't like to wait for food to cook. And what I mean by that, I eat all leftovers cold. Two minutes in the microwave is just too long for me. Even soup, I'll eat it cold. I need to get it in my belly very quickly. I don't like to wait for the end of movies. I literally watch movies often with subtitles, always, but oftentimes fast-forwarding with subtitles so I can read it faster than it can actually unfold. You will never ruin a movie for me. There's no such thing as a spoiler. Tell me it all. Reveal it. I want to know how it ends, what happens, so I don't have to see the movie and I know the story. I don't like to wait for anything. I don't like to wait in line. That is why many of us will order takeout and I will always go through self-checkout. And because we live in the future, as Andrew often says, in our Amazon Prime culture, we don't have to wait for anything. I literally, several weeks ago, ordered something on Saturday morning, and it was at my house Saturday evening, delivered by some weirdo in some strange car that now delivers for Amazon, I guess, this Strange car pulled up, opens their trunk, and I'm like, what are they doing, getting a gun out? And they get this Amazon package, and I'm like, this is odd, but thank you. I don't have to wait. I don't like to wait, but it seems like waiting is one of God's favorite things to do. And even when we have God's Word, right, when He declares His promises, what will come to pass Waiting on God is very difficult. Sometimes it feels like impossible, especially for those of us, if there are any of us who struggle waiting for anything. We want things to happen according to our will and according to our way. But unfortunately, or probably better fortunately, uh, God doesn't operate according to our desires. He does not operate according to our schedules. He doesn't give us what we want, when we want it, because like a good parent, he knows what is best. About himself, God says through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And by higher thoughts, God means perfect thoughts. And if his thoughts are perfect, then his ways are perfect, including his timing. But even knowing that, like, I can acknowledge that. I can assent to that truth. God's ways are perfect. God's timing is perfect. It's still very hard to wait on God. And while the Scripture reveals that God makes many incredible promises to His people, the Old Testament in particular, but all the Bible, 
also reveals that he often makes those same people to wait for those promises to come to pass. If you remember Noah, right? Took him quite a long time to build the boat for the flood that would come one day, though Noah had never seen it likely rain. Noah was commanded and remained in the ark for over a year. He didn't know if he was going to be in the ark for 15 minutes and wipe out and come out. It was a year long. Abraham and Sarah were promised a child and they waited 25 years for that child to come. Israel, due to their own sin, wandered the wilderness for 40 years until they were able to enter the promised land. Judah was in exile for 70 years until they returned to the promised land where they were restored by God. More times than we could probably number, God tells us and commands us to wait. And the question is like, what are we waiting for exactly? And, and why? why? Why does he want us to wait? And is there a way we're supposed to wait? Is there like a right and a wrong way to wait? And, and how do we find the strength to actually wait? Because it's really hard. And so as you look at the book of Acts, in particular the second part of the first chapter, that might not be the first thing that comes to mind, but it's where I got stuck this week in thinking about them waiting. Because after the disciples were commissioned with this grand mission to go and proclaim the gospel to all the world, go and make disciples of all nations, witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are then commanded to wait. You are to wait. And because Luke and Acts are a two-volume set, one's a prequel, one's a sequel, the end of Luke's end of Luke ends the same way Acts begins. And so the end of Luke, chapter 24, verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things, speaking to his disciples. He says, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He says, wait. And there's several things he tells them to wait for. Because it's a good question. What are they waiting for exactly? It's pretty explicit. But I think if we look at the many things, several things he tells them to wait for, there's really only one thing. He tells them to wait for my Father's promise. And then he says, wait for the power that comes with that promise promise. And because we know the end of the story, because we've read ahead that this promised power is in fact God, the Holy Spirit, essentially Jesus is saying, wait for God's presence. Wait for my presence. Wait for me. Don't go into the world without me. Don't move without me. Don't make decisions or plans without me. Don't go and try to even do good, godly work without me. 
And the implication is that we often do just that. We make plans without God. We make decisions without God because we don't want to wait for God. And so the disciples hear this, stay in the city, and they, according to the book of Acts, obey. They return to the upper room where they possibly had the last supper with Jesus. It could be another upper room, but they're staying in Jerusalem and they are waiting. And again, because we know the end of the story, it's, it's easy for us to go, oh, they just got to wait a little bit. Like, we have to realize that as soon as they begin to wait, God says nothing for at least a week. They just had some pretty amazing experiences. They have been spending 40 days with the resurrected Jesus. They've been given this great mission. They've been promised these amazing things. And then they said, now go wait. And then God says nothing. He's silent. And because if you read the end of Luke and even the end of John, you'll see that even when the disciples were with the resurrected Jesus, it says, some believed and some doubted. Like with the resurrected Jesus. So we have to believe that when they're in the presence of Jesus, if they doubted, now away from the presence of Jesus, they probably have some doubts and probably have some fears, especially with God not talking anymore. They are waiting. And because it's only a week or so, we might read that or hear that or know that and go, well, it's not that long just a week. But if we think about it, I think most of us, many of us, know how difficult it is to wait to be standing in the silence of God when we're in the midst of a very difficult circumstance, hoping and expecting God to do something. A week's an eternity. And it's noteworthy that God doesn't ever tell the disciples, Jesus never tells the disciples how long they're going to wait. We know how long it is now, but you imagine them like, okay, God, do something. You promised to do something. And you think about that, right? When you are in the midst of those situations where you, you know God says, I will act, I will be with you always, and you're like, okay, Lord. And so you pray, Lord, I need to make the decision. I need to go, I have this thing. And all you ever hear is, wait. Okay, so the next day comes. I'm like, okay, Lord, nothing happened in those 24 hours. We're now moving into the second 24 hours. Okay, Lord. And he says, Wait. In fact, he's not saying anything. What he said already was wait. And so you think, okay, Lord, you seem really quiet. You seem distant. You seem far away. Where are you? And you go back, well, he told us to wait, so I'll wait. So hard, especially when it's hard. It's interesting as we see in Scripture, God often makes a point of giving directions, but not always final destinations or itineraries of what the waiting is going to be like and where exactly it's going to end. 
He tells us things like in Jeremiah 29, 11, which I'm sure many of us have plastered on our walls at home. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And those plans are, Lord? I know the plans. I believe that. Would you let me know how that plan unfolds a little bit? It seems like it's taking a while. We convince ourselves if he tells us more, we might actually believe and not be bothered by waiting. The truth is, he doesn't tell us how or when those plans come to pass. He says, trust me. He gives us his word, and then he says, wait. This is what I said, wait for it to come to pass. And in their case, they're not waiting for something, they're waiting for someone. But it's very tempting when something happens to go ahead without that someone, right? We talk about, in Christian culture, open doors. And that's a biblical thing. Paul mentions doors opening. But we have just grabbed onto that and gone crazy with it, right? Well, I believe the door is open. And so we confuse opportunities or open doors for God's doors. Even if the door opens, we should refuse to move if God's presence is not going with us. We're not waiting for opportunity. We're not waiting for, well, this thing I wanted, now I can have it. So I guess God wants me to have, maybe, and maybe not. We're not waiting for opportunities, we are waiting for God. And Moses knew this well. If you know the story of Moses, after the Exodus, God takes them to the base of Mount Sinai, and with Joshua he goes up. And he receives the law of God. And in Exodus 32, as he is coming down, he hears a big party going on. The first commandment of the Lord is, have no other gods before me. And the Israelites have made a god. And they are worshiping a golden calf. And a series of events happen. The people are admonished. They're forced to eat their idol that they made the commandments are remade by God, the covenant reestablished with his people. And then God says, it's time to leave Sinai. And he says, I want you guys to leave Sinai, start walking towards the promised land. And he says, I will send my angel before you and drive out all the inhabitants and all the enemies, but I will not go with you. That's what they want, right? They want a home of their own. They, they, okay, we want to get out of this Sinai. Let's go. And Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with us, don't bring us out of here. And that challenges all of us as we think about waiting for God because because it's so difficult to wait, and it's hard for me to wait, it's hard for us to wait, when the opportunity opens, it's so tempting to go, yes! And actually God's like, no! 
and we go without His presence. And so, what we're waiting for exactly is the presence of God, the person of God, God Himself, to be with us, to commune with us, to lead us, to walk with. But the question still remains as you look at these disciples, well, like, okay, so if we're waiting on God, we're actually waiting for God, but why does He make us wait at all? Like, why does He make the disciples wait? And there's certainly lots of answers to that that have to do much with the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which we'll talk about next week. But why not just empower them with the Spirit? Go. He's ascending to heaven. By the way, the Holy Spirit's coming to you now. And there they go. They're empowered. They go. Why wait? Why the delay? Why does God make us wait? And there are certainly probably more reasons than we can know. But there's several that I have just sat upon this week to reveal maybe my own frustrations as to why I struggle in waiting. I believe God causes to wait for several reasons. One, to reveal the true motivations of our heart. Like when you're forced to wait, your true motives are often revealed. In other words, do we want what we want or do we actually want what God wants? Like Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now catch this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Is that what we really want? Are we really prepared to receive his kingdom as it comes according to his will, especially if it conflicts with ours? Are we ready to receive that? Because waiting often will reveal if we are or not. If we really want what God wants or we really just want what we want. I believe waiting also changes our character, right? The trial that we call waiting is divinely designed to produce in us something that we are lacking. Waiting produces patience. It produces endurance. It produces faithfulness. There's nothing that will produce endurance and patience than a long obedience in the same direction where nothing changes. But what will change is your heart. Because God wants to change our hearts more than He actually wants to change our circumstances, He'll use unchanging circumstances to change our hearts. And that's not punishment. That's love. Because there's something lacking in us that needs to be placed in us. Waiting increases our dependence on God. We, we wait on God, and especially when we start to extinguish every means by which we've tried to accomplish our own will and our own way, and it doesn't work, we are forced to our knees. We are forced to surrender. We are forced to acknowledge that it is God on whom we depend, and He's the one who gets to decide the terms, even the timing of His plan. Waiting compels us to ask for help. I love what Psalm 69 
says, I love the Psalms because they are often just, they're beautiful pictures of, of real, genuine crying out to God in real, genuine situations that we experience. The psalmist cries, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mud where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So see that situation? It's one they don't want to be in. And then it says, and I'm weary from my crying out. My throat is parched. Because waiting forces us to cry out to God. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants to increase our dependence upon Him. And it's connected with the last part, which is it produces God's glory. And like, what do I mean by that? Well, waiting actually minimizes our glory and maximizes God because our default mode is to seek our own comfort and our own glory. And so that we won't do that and think we're awesome, God will cause us to wait. I think one of the best pictures of this is in the book of Judges. I preached this several years ago. There's a man named Gideon who is one of the heroes or judges of this book. Chosen by God, used by God, still becomes idolatrous, but God only has broken people to work with, so that's pretty much what you're going to find in the Bible. But Gideon is chosen to be the defender of Israel, the lead, the judge at the time, and the Midianites, which is an enemy of God, gather to attack Israel. And so Gideon, being the leader, calls all of Israel together and gathers a huge army of tens of thousands. And as he's about to attack, God says, oh, no, 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 no. I, I can't send that army in there. What do you mean? He goes, well... Uh, we need to whittle it down a little bit. And he whittles this tens of thousands of army down to 300 people, saying this, the people with you, when it was huge, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God wants us to understand that He is the one who fights. He is the one who wins. He is the one in whose glory is most important. And He will cause us to wait until we recognize that. Because when we don't wait, we end up becoming prideful, believing that we're awesome, I've got this, I can handle this, and the reality is we can't handle anything. We are dependent upon God, our Creator, and Lord. And so that's why he causes us to wait, to, to change us, right? We're waiting for God. That's who and what we're waiting for. And we're waiting because he wants to change us and increase our dependence and produce in something that's not there and glorify himself. But waiting doesn't mean just doing nothing. We have this idea of like, well, either do everything or I wait and do nothing. And that's not the picture the disciples give us. We can waste our wait, and we don't want to do that. So how do we wait for God? Well, if you look at the text beginning in verse 12, 
There are several things that they do that teach us how we are to wait. As we're waiting for God to move, as we're waiting for God to decide and to reveal and to guide us and and open up whatever opportunity we think we need or the opportunity that he knows we must have. The first thing they do, you see, is they wait in community. Verse 12 says, They returned Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They're together in the upper room. They were not told necessarily to stay together, to collect together, to gather together, but this is the report that is given to Luke. We were together. We were together for a long time. They waited, it seems, for a week together. Often enough to describe themselves that way. They wanted to be together. They needed to be together. And they waited together. See, all too often when our will and our way is not coming to pass, we withdraw from community. We withdraw from people who may remind us of God's word and God's promises, the kinds of things we need. We withdraw from people because we want to isolate and we want to kind of stew and throw our own little pity party. Proverbs 18.1 warns us, it says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all such judgment. When we isolate ourselves, we're actually devoting ourselves to our will and our way. And community is a way to protect ourselves from that as we wait for God's will to be done in our lives. It was not good for man to be alone before the fall, and it's even worse after the fall. So when we're waiting with God, we must wait together, even though our flesh wants to rear up against that and push against that. I don't want to be around people. You need to be around God's people, especially when you're waiting for God to move. But they don't just sit and wait, right? It says Acts 1.14, they're waiting together in prayer. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Like, So think, Luke is writing an investigative report. That's why he has such specific things, locations where people are at, the numbers, like there were 120 people. He has little parentheticals in there. He is not an eyewitness to any of these accounts, and so he's going to eyewitnesses and giving their, or getting their reports. So you can imagine he connected with Andrew or Philip or Peter or Bartholomew or Mary or Jesus' brothers, who knows? And he Ask them, so what happened? Tell me what happened after Jesus ascended. Well, he ascended and he told us to wait. What did that look like? Well, we went back to the city and we gathered in the upper room and, and there was like 120 of us around there. Like, and what did you guys do? Think of all the things they could have described them doing for a week. And the one thing that is reported, we were devoted to prayer. Do you think that was the most important thing they were doing? Absolutely. 
They could have talked about all other things. Well, we sat and Peter really encouraged us with some real uplifting things and we just kind of told stories. He's like, no, maybe they did some of those things, but they said they were devoted to prayer. Prayer dominates their report because prayer is the most tangible act of the surrender and dependence we can participate in. They were together going, we can't do this. God has to. We need God to move. We're waiting for God to move. If you want to know, am I waiting for God? What does it look like to wait for God? What does your prayer life look like? Would it be described, would you be described, would we be described as a people who are devoted to prayer when we are waiting? I think often my tendency is to be devoted to planning. Okay, I'm going to figure all this out. I'm going to map this all out and fix this. And they do do their planning, but not before they pray. And even when they do their planning, they pray after their planning. Prayer is not primarily designed to move the hand of God, though it does. I would say that prayer is primarily designed to have the hand of God move you and shape you and change you. Oswald Chambers once wrote, and we, we view prayer, I think, oftentimes as like, okay, like as preparatory, which in a sense it is, but like I'm praying to prepare myself for this amazing commission we're going to have. And I love what Oswald Chambers said. He said, prayer is not preparing us for a greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. When we are waiting on God, we must be persistent in prayer. But that's not all they do. Acts 1.15 says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, about 120 people, and he said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Right? They wait together, and they wait in prayer, and then they wait in the Word. What does that even mean? Consider Peter, the denier of Jesus, recommissioned by Jesus to say, Feed my sheep. He is now feeding the sheep. This is the first time Peter has taught anything, said anything in a leadership capacity for these people after the ascension of Jesus. And what is the very first thing he says? Brothers, the Bible is true. Brothers, the Bible, the Word of God. He says the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, still speaking about the Spirit of God, spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. For he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then he just skipped ahead of verse 20. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, let another take his office. And so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the first day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So as I said, it's the first time Peter is taught. He is the fully restored shepherd. He is now feeding the sheep. And the first thing he does is go, let me tell you how the Bible explains what happened up to this point. 
Because remember, they know Judas. They were friends with Judas. Judas betrayed them. They don't fully understand what happened. He went and hung himself. What? He went and sold out Jesus. How does that even work? I said, this was foretold in the scriptures. And you got to imagine, they're going, what do we do next? Well, we wait. And as we wait, we look at the scriptures to see what we're supposed to do next. And in this case, it's let another take his office. His first act is to direct the eyes of people toward the Word of God as the explanation for what happened and the direction or instruction for what should happen next. So as you're waiting for God, as you're waiting on God, you are together, you're in community, and you're praying, and you're opening the Bible to understand how you got where you are and where to go next. But you notice they don't just pray and then read and then meditate. Hmm. That's good to know. You see, they act. In verse 23, says they put forward two guys. So they make this plan. We're going to put these two guys forward. Joseph called Bersabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they pray. It's beautiful, right? They do make a plan, but they don't just go, this is a fantastic plan. They plan, and then they commit those plans to the Lord. And then they act on the plan. They cast lots, and the lot falls to Matthias, and he becomes the 12th apostle to replace Judas. And my point is that waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. Waiting doesn't even mean just sitting in community not just praying, not just reading the Bible. Waiting means acting. They replace Judas. They choose a man who's qualified to be an apostle, someone who's witnessed his whole ministry, including his resurrection. But they're not purely pragmatic. They are prayerful. So catch this. Please hear this. Because I think when we think about waiting on the Lord and waiting for Him to move, even fulfill His promises, we make one of two mistakes. We are not supposed to act without prayer. But we're also not supposed to just pray and do nothing. God's mission is not fulfilled through prayer-filled passivity. And his mission isn't fulfilled by prayerless activity. We are to be prayerful and we are to act. We are to make our plans and we are to commit them to the Lord. Even as we wait, we do make decisions and we do act. It's not that there's nothing to do. Now, the question we all have to remain or, or rest on is like, what happens if we refuse to wait this way? What happens when we seek our own will, even if we call it God's will, and we force our own way? We see a door crack and we're like, I think that's an open door for the Lord, right? And you push it open. What happens if you do that? Now, the reason we do that, I think, is because anxiety. 
We, we see the way we expect things to go not happening, and we're like, I need to make this happen. And the sin behind that is really your trust in your own wisdom and your own strength to do something only God can do. That's what Psalm 127 reminds us of, saying, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so how do, how do I know, okay, what do I know if I'm forcing it? How do I know if I'm seeking my own will or, or trying to, to force my own way? How do I know I'm not waiting as God would have me wait, as the Scriptures would call me to wait? I would argue it's pretty obvious, though, if you examine yourself, make sure you're honest about it. I would say that we're not waiting for the Lord when we isolate from community and we go it alone. We don't seek counsel I would argue that we're not waiting for the Lord when we make awesome plans without prayer. I would argue we're not waiting for the Lord when your decisions to do certain things sound very spiritual, but they aren't very biblical. Did you know there's a difference? It's amazing how many things are baptized in the name of Jesus that actually aren't in the Bible, including our plans and our desires. But I also argue that we're not waiting for the Lord when our ultimate goal and pursuit is self-glory, whether it be our own comfort, our own success, or just our own desires. Essentially, we become like Judas, which I know is like, oh, Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. You're saying I'm a betrayer of Jesus? Well, certainly not in every way. Judas is a very interesting individual to study, to explore. People wonder, like, was he ever a believer? Why was he following Jesus? He seemed to always be about money. He was stealing from the treasury. But he hung out with Jesus for three years, right? Certainly we're not like Judas in every way, but perhaps we're more like Judas than we think sometimes. At the simplest level, and I do mean the simplest level without going into too much depth, Judas was a guy who latched onto Jesus for a time. And he never really believed in Jesus, but he sure liked to hang out with him because I think he believed Jesus was his means to get his way. But he became disillusioned when Jesus' way began to unfold in a way that he didn't like and it wasn't going to accomplish what he wanted. And so we know what he did. And I think similarly, we refuse to wait when things don't go the way that we want and we sell out Jesus for a few bucks if it means we can get what we want. So, Many of us do what's right in our own eyes if it means getting what we want, and that usually means turning your back on Jesus and not waiting for him to do his work. That's what happens when you go your own way, and we see it leads to death of something in your life, if not just yourself. So the question is, where, where do we find strength to wait? Because if I just like, okay, I need to wait, I need to wait, that sounds hard, 
and not much of a hope. And so if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, I'll close it out with a story that might seem disconnected, but I believe it is very much connected. John chapter 11 records the story of Lazarus, which you may be familiar with. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are good friends of Jesus. And when Jesus was away on uh, doing ministry, away from Bethany, the city where they lived, uh, Lazarus became deathly ill, very sick. And a report comes to Jesus about the sickness. And Jesus waits. If you read in John chapter 11, verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, interesting that that has to be said. But he loves them. He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. So, like, that's an interesting word. So, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days. What? He loves them so much when he heard that he was deathly ill, he delayed. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. So when Jesus arrives at the city, Lazarus has died. The family is in mourning. And in verse 17 of that same chapter, he says, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And you're wondering, why is Mary sitting there? Perhaps she's not pleased with Jesus, disappointed in Jesus. Angry with Jesus. When we have to wait for God's plan to unfold, that's a huge temptation. Martha said to Jesus, so maybe this is what Mary's been thinking, perhaps what they were talking about before he came. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why are they so upset? Because Jesus waited. And it's not a mystery that he waited. It's not like they're like, oh, Jesus, I know you had trouble in traffic, a lot of camels on the path, right? Oh, I understand. You can know that when he talked to the disciples, they talked to him like, what, what happened? Jesus told us to wait a couple days. But didn't, didn't the guy come and report? Like, didn't my servant tell you? Yeah, he told us. And then Jesus said, yeah, we're going to wait a couple days. They know he waited. When our expectations of God, especially his timings, conflict with what we want, um, we are in a dangerous place. On the edge of unbelief and anger. So then you see, as you read, that Jesus weeps, which is weird. Why is that weird? Well, it's strange to me for two reasons. One, he didn't have to wait. And two, because we know the end of the story, he knows what's coming. He knows what he's going to do. You're like, 
yet he's grieved. As he looks at the mourners, he's grieved. And I believe in many ways, Jesus' weeping reveals that like a loving father, God does desire to give us his best, but that often means delay to ensure his best is given. And that will hurt. And he grieves with us as we hurt and even as we wait, but he knows something better is coming. John chapter 11 says, Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb, it was a cave and a stone laid against him. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor. The body is rank from sitting in there for four days. And Jesus says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You shouldn't have waited, Lord. Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? It's taken too long. It's too late. Did I not tell you if you believe you will see the glory of God? Strength is found when we believe that there is something greater than what we want when we want it. That something greater is actually someone greater, and it's God, His will, His way, Himself. The word wait in the Bible carries this idea of confident expectation and hope. And as you read in the Psalms, it's not the hope of a particular circumstance. It's actually hope for and in a person, namely God. Psalm 62 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence, my hope is from him. And so it's interesting, as Mary says, it's gonna reek. It's almost as if she's saying, Your way stinks, God. Your way stinks. It's too late. I don't like it. It smells. But in truth, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and we learn that we actually find strength to wait for God to fulfill his promises. How? Because we find strength in the resurrection of Jesus. We find strength knowing that the death of our will, the end of our will, the death of our way, the end of our way means the resurrection of God's way. The resurrection of God's will, which is perfect and more glorious than we could ever imagine even if he were to tell us in advance. We wouldn't believe it. Being still and knowing God is a means by which we surrender our own agendas, we stop trusting our own strength, we stop trusting in our own power, and we believe with the deepest conviction this truth, that all we have right now and all we don't have right now is a gift from God. And we look at that situation with Lazarus, like how could that ever be a gift Several years ago, it's probably, gosh, six or so years ago now, we lost my daughter at the water slides. It was the worst day of my life. She was probably six or seven. Her brothers were supposed to be watching her. And when we noticed that she was not around, I began a search. And in time, over time, I 
began to get very worried as 15 minutes goes by, 20 minutes go by, 45 minutes go by. You can imagine where my mind was going. I was weeping as I'm searching the park. Found out later that as I'm going to the top of the hill, she's on the adult slides going down, and I'm like going like this. And I found her sitting in the hot tub going, hey, Dad. I'm like, oh, my God. And we quickly got all the kids in the car, right? We're out of here. And we got in the car. And I'll never forget, the kids started bickering like within 30 seconds, right? And Kalen started to correct them. And I said, let them bicker. Just let them bicker. I love it. And it was because my daughter was returned. My love for her was exponentially stronger in that moment. Which you can imagine having lost someone like Lazarus, what his sisters must have experienced and the love and the depth of love that that created. I believe that's what God is doing for us when he makes us wait. And some things get killed figuratively, but ultimately they're restored through the resurrection of Jesus, even if it is even real death. That everything is restored in Jesus. And so our hope is there. And we find strength in the resurrection to wait for what the Lord has said, not yet. It's going to be good. Trust me. Waiting on God in many ways is simply an invitation to grow closer to Him. And so don't waste your weight. W-A-I-T. A lot of us are wasting our weight, you know what I mean, right? Don't waste your weight. Draw closer to God. It's an invitation. It's not a time to run. It's not a time to do your own will, your own way. It's time to trust and receive His kingdom as it comes, believing it is for the best. Let's pray.